to sing of our salvation that we have in the Lord. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, go to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, we'll start in verse 27 of Luke chapter 5. While you're turning there, let me just remind you that uh, we'll gather together again this evening for our evening prayer um, tonight, so make sure that you're here for that from 6 to 7 o'clock. Jim Shawbrook is going to be leading us in that time. This will come as no surprise to some of you, particularly my family, but meals are some of my favorite times of the day. That's not just because I love to eat, which is true. The more significant factor is that I have some of the sweetest memories in all of my life that have taken place around the table. I think as we engage in this new series, walking through the Gospel of Luke to look at meals with Jesus, that we might just see the same thing to be true about his earthly ministry. Jesus loved to eat and drink. And I think some of his richest memories in his earthly ministry are found around food. Now, I'm particularly blessed because I love food and my wife loves to cook. And I used to think that her greatest desire in cooking was just simply to put a good meal on the table before family and friends and guests. And while she certainly enjoys to do that, there is something more than just putting excellent food on a plate that she desires. Really, what she's seeking is something outside of her control. She loves the moment when a meal becomes an experience. The point when good food serves as a complement to the love, unity, and fellowship that's shared around the table. So it is for Justin and I as we prepare to work through this series called Graceful. We desire to deliver something like a good meal to you each week. We'll put the prep and the work into that. But our ultimate goal is not something that we can accomplish. It is something outside of our control. As we, through the eyes of Luke, sit at the table with Jesus, our prayer is that the Spirit of God would so work to help us see with more clarity, comprehend with greater depth, and gain a greater measure than ever before of the heart of Christ. The happy, compassionate, sinner-seeking, spirit-anointed, father-obeying, mercy-rich, and grace-filled heart. Of Jesus. Pray with me. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. And hearts to understand your heart as revealed in your Son, Jesus Christ. 
And as your spirit works to give us your heart, we ask for courage and strength to consistently and joyfully leave behind what is comfortable and safe, to love people, and to engage in relationships that are so often messy and hard, and yet so rich. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. This is what the Word of God says. After this, he, meaning Jesus, went up and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. May God bless his word. I can see we're going to have to reinstitute the RSVP. The front row is like there's this movement away, and I get it. I'm sitting on the second row even this morning. So, uh, no, it's good to see you this morning, and, um, and I'm thankful to be starting this series for our summer preaching uh, in Luke chapter 5 here. We start today, and uh, as Eric was sharing a moment ago, this is we've been praying for the flock through this, and we've been... Uh, praying for one another as we've been, as we're preparing, and and we are asking the Lord to do great things in in us and through us um, this summer. Uh, Eric and I don't just share the same haircut; we share the love for food and uh, for meals. And so I echo his comments. I always get excited about summer in general. I like a lot of things about summer. I like being outside and and sweating and, and, you know, working in the garden and those kinds of things and swimming and backyard parties. And there's been, especially this year, I think those things really mean a lot. And we've had all these graduation parties and stuff, and it's just fun to be together with people and, and just, just mingling with folks. That's something we don't take for granted as much anymore, perhaps. I like riding around with the windows down in the truck and playing music and those kinds of things. And so, but the, there's also food, and I love summer food. Um, there are there are certain foods that we tend to enjoy seasonally. I've realized we we can get access to almost any fruit and vegetable year round, uh, but but still I think we we um, we still have some of that seasonal appreciation for foods. So in the fall, we tend to eat pumpkin pie and to make a pot of chili and those kinds of things, and we associate those meals and the, that food with seasons. Uh, we just coming out of strawberry season when you can go down and pick the strawberries and they're fresh and they're at their, at their best, and they're local, and so we, we know that, but, but summer foods in particular, they're, 
are, are ones that I love. I love those fresh garden vegetables and when you can just slice a tomato and that's, that's enough. Just salt and pepper on that baby and it is good. And uh, we, do an, an, we have an annual tradition of making onion rings, homemade onion rings in the summer, usually on July 4th. And we do it once a year, and, but it's so good. And, and, uh, and so, so we homemade ice cream and barbecue. Well, barbecue's year-round but for, for a lot of people. But having the outdoor barbecue you know, celebration and stuff. But, but food matters, doesn't it? Um, in, in some ways, it matters more than it should. That's a different sermon series that we could talk about. Um, but meals matter. Uh, God could have made us so that we didn't need to eat or that we wouldn't find the enjoyment that we do in eating. Um, he didn't have to, to, to make us this way. In Genesis 1, one of the first things, though, that God, that God does when he creates Adam and Eve is he tells them what's on the menu. He points out the things that are there to be eaten and for them to eat. And so food, food's fuel for our bodies, but, but meals are more than that. As Eric alluded to, meals connect us to people. They create bonds. They, they turn strangers into friends. They, 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 they're the place that family lore is passed along. Um, they are where values are instilled to the next generation. They are, they are the place where oftentimes love blossoms. They're, meals are where decisions are often made. Meals are where fractured relationships are reconciled. So all kinds of stuff happens at those meals. Uh, this, is, this is one of the things. We get kind of nostalgic when we think about meal times. So many of my memories are attached to that as our kids are growing up and we have, you know, well, next fall, we'll, half of our children will be out of the house uh, um, if, if, if the Lord wills. And so it's, that's one of the things that I miss. It's not like the extravagant stuff. It's just a simple family meal with your kids around the table and laughing and and stories and just that time rehashing the day and those are things are special. Um, I, some meals again they introduce. I I can remember. I have a lot. I could go on and on in this part. This is dangerous. I I've thought of meals as just this morning. But I remember um, on uh, the the back porch of the Dials house 19 years ago this month, and we had calico beans and those little toast things with the meat and cheese. You may not even remember this. I remember it. Because this was my first trip to Georgia and to, to, to visit Baraka when we were candidating here, or when I was candidating here. And, and I, I can remember that, just hearing their story, um, hearing the history of Baraka Bible Church, hearing their heart for the flock, for you, and, 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 and the, the, the joys and the struggles and the sorrows and the hopes of pastoral ministry over, over their, their tenure. And, and so I just remember that. That's, that's, uh, that's ingrained in my mind. So, so meals introduce, meals sometimes reconnect. I remember we, we were in France one time uh, visiting the Flint House, but also we had some friends from California, dear friends of ours that we'd spent a lot of time with, and we were able to reconnect with them. They were serving in, in Marseille, France, and, and so just, you know, we, we spent the day hearing about their ministry and seeing their neighborhood and the opportunities they were ministering among uh, uh, North African immigrants and in southern France there, and just hearing their heart for that, that community. And then we sit down and enjoy, you know, just a, just a basic meal of bread and cheese, but it's good bread and cheese. And, and, and just outside on their patio, and it's just so good, laughing and sharing stories and catching up. Meals, they, they, they reconnect. Meals sometimes change your life. That's where you make plans. 
uh, I, I remember sitting down with Buddy Baldridge, sitting up here on the second row at the Jayton Cafe and having chicken fried steak together as I nervously asked for his permission to marry his daughter. And, uh, and, and about then having to wait like three months until he finally said yes. But no, uh, no but that, that changed my life. Um, so meals matter. They matter to us. They, they matter to Jesus as well. Um, just finish this sentence. The Son of Man came. The Son of Man came. How would you complete that? The Son of Man came preaching the word. He came to establish his kingdom. He came to die on the cross for our sins. All of those statements are true, but the New Testament actually completes that, explicitly completes that sentence three times in the, in the New Testament. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then more curiously, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Now, the first two statements are different than the third. The first two are statements of purpose. They tell us why Jesus came. And the third statement, though, it's a statement of, of, of like it's an easy method. It's how Jesus came. This was the manner in which he came. He, he came eating and drinking. It's in Luke chapter 7, verse 34. Don't want to steal your thunder, Eric. But the Son of Man came eating and drinking. So much so, from their perception, in, in, in excess. So much so that you say, look at him. A glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. There's this extravagance in which he ate and drank and feasted. And, and that points to this extravagance of grace. Graceful. This is what we're, we're looking at here. And so we're going to spend the, most of our time this summer in Luke's gospel looking at these different occasions where Jesus is meeting with people over food. And, and so just get ready to salivate a lot. This is why nobody wants to sell in the front row because we're going to be spitting all over you this week and this month talking about meals, but there, and there are a lot of meals recorded in, recorded by Luke. One New Testament scholar said in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And so these, these are significant, there are multiple accounts, and these, in these episodes, we, though, we get the window into, into both the message and the, and the mission of, of Jesus, and, and even more than that, as, as Eric was alluding to, we get, a, we get a window into the heart of Christ for his disciples and for the lost, and that's what we want to see grow in us. So some of these meals are going to be sort of these impromptu occasions, like the feeding of the 5,000. Some others are going to be meticulously planned by Jesus, like the Lord's Supper, and then Others are going to be great banquets like the passages that we're looking at today. And so this morning here, this feast at Levi's house in, in Luke 5. There's one other thing about meals, and then we get right into the text, is this. It's that who you eat with says a great deal about you. And what I mean is this, is it's who is welcome at your table, it speaks volumes to how you view yourself. Um, maybe say it this way, who... Um, Whose table you're invited to or maybe not invited to also says a lot about how others might view you. Um, and that could be for good or for bad. That's true now in our own context, but it was especially true in Jesus' day, in the time of his earthly ministry. And so table fellowship was, if not, 
it, it was one of, if not the most important social convention, conventions in that ancient Near Eastern world. And so in the people Jesus ate with, that caused a stir, as we already see in this passage. And it's going to continue to do that throughout this, this gospel account. So Jesus ate, and then controversy ensued. Scandal, even. And so because, again, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. There's that phrase that we're going to see over and over again. Much to the chagrin, much to the even the hostility of the religious and respectable elite of the day. So look at verse 27. We're in, the, we're in Luke 5, verse 27, and you see that first phrase, after this. Now, what? After what? You can just look back in the, in the, in the previous uh, chapter, or through, and earlier in chapter 5, and back into chapter 4. And so Jesus has been, he's demonstrating his authority here at the early part of, of Luke's gospel. Authority um, in his teaching and preaching. So he shows up in his hometown, and, and he's saying, scriptures are fulfilled, and you're hearing now as I'm, as I'm preaching to you. I, I am the fulfillment. And so he's, he's teaching and preaching with authority. He's healing with authority. He's calling his disciples and gathering them around him and showing that authority. And he's forgiving sin. He has authority to forgive sin. And so you see just in this chapter, look back at verse 12. He, he heals and he touches this leper, this social and unclean outcast. He, he normally, if you touched a leper, you would become unclean. But here instead, Jesus, instead of becoming unclean, touches this leper and he's suddenly cleansed. This is grace in action. Authority and grace in action. You look down to verse 17 to 26. He, he not only heals the paralyzed man, but he forgives his sin. He forgives his sin with just a word. No reference to the temple. No reference to the rituals that this man needs to do to have forgiveness from God. No, he just says, you're forgiven. And so together, all these events and these demonstrations of gracious authority, they, they have the religious you know, upper echelon. They are all riled up. The Pharisees, they, Jesus' message of grace and mercy and forgiveness, they, these things uh, extended to undeserving sinners, they're intolerable to, to these religious elite. And so it's in that context that grace now, it meets this man named Levi. Grace shows up, and we're going to see just four quick statements today. One, we're going to see grace surprises. Grace surprises. Second, grace spreads. Third, grace disturbs. And then fourth, grace goes. It acts. So first, grace surprises. Look at verse 27. After this, he went out, Jesus went out, and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Very short, very simple and understated. But here's, here's Levi, the, quote, tax collector. And so we first meet him. He's sitting there alone at his tax booth. Notice, I mean, that's very uh, emphatic here that he's a tax collector at his tax booth. And there he's, he's, he's wanting us to get this guy. It's tax collectors, it's not hard for us to understand that they're not very popular people. I mean, that's true today. Nobody loves getting the call. Hey, you're going you're gonna to be audited. Oh, wonderful. I get to spend all kinds of time with this IRS agent. This will be great. And, and no, 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 that's not the case. But tax collector in the first century evoked even stronger negative feelings and thoughts about, about this, this, this person in this profession. And so just imagine being heavily taxed, not by your own government, but by 
a foreign occupying power. I mean, imagine if, if, if some other nation invaded the United States and then starts taxing you exorbitantly. But not only that, imagine being taxed all over the place in all kinds of ways. Everything you do, every, you can hardly move without being taxed. Your income, your, you know, if you trade anything, uh, transportation, everything is taxed. But not only that, imagine this foreign power hiring people from among you to prey on your own people. And so the, these tax collectors were, were fellow Jews who've collaborated with, with the, the enemy, as it were, for personal gain. They're traitors of their nation, traitors of God. That's how they were viewed. But not only that, imagine these tra uh, traitors, these tax collectors, extorting unjust amounts of money from you for personal gain, becoming rich doing so. I mean, these guys were corrupt. They, they, they didn't just meet their quota of taxes. They skimmed a lot off the top. They, 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 um, they, they, they're, it was entirely up to their discretion in terms of how much they wanted to squeeze you for. And so they used that to line their pockets while your family starved. And that's the, that's the kind of the thought you need to have as we, as we come upon Levi here. And so here's Levi sitting in his tax booth. Tax booth, that's where a lot of this stuff went down. And so these booths were situated alongside the roads. They were kind of up high so, so they could see the people as they passed by and could find who they needed. And so Levi here is... He's looking at his own people that he's betrayed eyeball to eyeball as they're passing by. And there's no question that, that as those Jews walked by, they sneered at him. They spit on the ground in front of him. And, and, and so this is what you need to have in mind when we come across this guy, Levi the tax collector, this low-life scum. That's how he's viewed, sitting in this despised tax booth all alone with his bags of money around him. I mean, in Jesus' day, this, this was the equivalent of saying something like, here was this social and religious loser, a total sellout, doing his dirty work. That's, that's what this is communicating. And, and, it was, and it was to this social and religious pariah that Jesus spoke. Not only spoke, he effectually called to himself. Grace met this unlikely man in this most unlikely place and totally transformed him. And so Christ calls him, grace meets him, and, and now Levi, the tax collector, becomes Matthew, the disciple of Jesus. That's what's going down here. And so what this is communicating to us is, is there's not a single person who's beyond the, beyond the reach of God's grace. No one is. If the call of sovereign grace can reach and change a man like Levi, a tax collector, it can change anyone. It can change you. I mean, this, this account is recorded for us in Matthew's gospel account. And so Matthew, he, of course he writes this down. I mean, imagine the gratitude in his heart remembering this, this episode in his life, this moment when God's grace surprised him showed up at his booth, and so he knew full well the condition that he was in before Christ found him. He knew he was an outcast. He was a traitor. He was without hope, without God in this world. And there was absolutely nothing to attract others to him, nothing to attract the Lord, the Holy Lord to him, for sure. 
And so his life was one that was only avoided, was always avoided. And there's only one reason he became the disciple of the king of kings. That's grace. It's grace. This is Matthew's testimony. I was was totally lost. I I was deserving of nothing but condemnation, and I knew it. Everybody knew it. I, I, I heard it every single day as people walked by my tax booth and they sneered and they ground their teeth at me. I, I went home each night with my bags of money completely alone, separated from my God. And all I can tell you is that when Christ came to me, I was sitting in my tax booth. And yet he came to me unexpectedly, undeservingly. There's only one word for that. Grace. Grace. This is Matthew's story. This is my story. This is your story. I mean, my story. I was, I was totally lost. I was a hypocrite. Teenager hypocrite. I tried to impress my parents. I tried to impress church leaders. But actively, I was seeking out sin in private. The lust of my heart were just raging. Unbelief reigned. I was miserable and lonely and weighed down in my sins, without hope. And in my darkest hour, Christ came to me in his word. Unexpectedly, undeservedly. And he called me to himself. And there's only one word to explain that. And it's grace. It's grace. I just say to you, dear sinner, if you're, if you're not in Christ and you, you haven't trusted in him, listen, you are not beyond the reach of Christ's surprising grace today no matter no matter how you've lived no matter your history no matter your secrets no matter what you've done no matter what people have done to you and how stained or broken or low or guilty you feel today Jesus can meet you he can he can transform and cleanse you by his grace exhibit a is Levi the tax collector this is this should just shock us that's the intent. And I just say, dear, it's not like we have sinners and non-sinners, but dear Christian sinner, if you're a believer here and you are a sinner, listen, no one, is, no one in your life is beyond the reach of God's grace. J.C. Ryle said in the 19th century, you, we must never despair of anyone's salvation so long as he lives after reading a case like this. I'm talking about Levi here. We must never say of anyone that he is too wicked or too hardened or too worldly to become a Christian. No sins are too many or too bad to be forgiven. Isn't that good news? No sins are too bad to be forgiven. No heart is too hard to be changed. He goes on. He who called Levi still lives and is the same as he was 1,800 years ago, 2,000 years ago now. With Christ, nothing is impossible. That's the message here. I know some of you have been praying for loved ones for years, decades. As far as you can tell, there's no movement. There's, there's no observable change. Their, their, their hearts seem almost impervious to the gospel. They, they, they're, they're immersed in the priorities of this world and the pleasures of this world. And, and, and so maybe you've just kind of grown weary and doubting and cynical. And, and, and so you've held them up before God's throne and pleaded on their behalf for years and years and years for Christ to save them. But they, 
They seem to be indifferent to the truth. You, every time you speak of Christ, walls get thrown up. We're talking about someone this morning in our prayer meeting. That that's, that's the case. And you're tempted to give up praying. And, you, and, you, and to give up hoping. And to give up speaking. Just let, let Christ's transforming, surprising grace here, calling and drawing Levi to himself, let him remind you that no one is beyond the reach of, of surprising grace. No one. All it takes is this single sovereign summons of Jesus, follow me. He calls, and in an instant, life can be turned upside down and inside out just like Levi's was. That's our story, brothers and sisters, isn't it? Is there any other explanation for how we are in Christ? Is it because we were better, because we were more inclined to to follow the Lord, to believe in the Lord? No, it was grace that surprised us, showed up, and just changed us. And so Jesus effectually calls Levi, surprising grace. Then what happens next? And you see in verse 28, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. (laughs) So simple, but so profound. He, le- he left loads of money. He left financial security. He left retirement plans. He left wealth that other Israelites at the time couldn't even imagine. And walking away from that tax booth meant he would never be able to go back to tax collecting again. It's not, you know, you could, you could fishermen can go back to fishing. Tax collectors can never go back to tax, taking, uh, collecting tax. It would never allow him to go back. He'd probably have a hard time finding any job after this. He left it all, and there's no indication here that he's, he's like crying as he's clutching his money bags and saying, oh, I don't know, I don't know. No, it's not, can I have a minute, Jesus, and just, you know, just finish things up and close things out. No, he just, he goes. Leon Morris, commentator, says, Matthew's grand gesture in leaving everything was not made in the spirit of grim resignation as of a man doing what he knew was right but saddened by the cost. No, he, he lost his job, but he found life. He lost a good income, a high standard of living, but he found riches in Christ Jesus. He lost financial security. He gained eternal security. And so he, 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 he doesn't, he's not, he left all, but he gained all. And so he's not sad, he's not morose. And the next scene we find is what? Jesus celebrating becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, spending his own funds uh, that, are, that are now going to be dried up. And he's just laying it all out there, celebrating Jesus. So grace, it surprises. That's the first thing we see. And, and what I mean, it never makes sense to us. Lord, why, why would you save me? We should just be shocked and stunned that the Lord would save us. Grace, grace surprises. Second, grace spreads. Grace spreads. Look at verse 29. And Levi, very next thing, he made him, Jesus, a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. That's the next scene. He leaves everything, follows Jesus, and then he throws this enormous party. So he throws this huge feast to celebrate what has just happened. It's at his house. He's funded this thing. He's done the guest list, invited everybody that's there. And so, and this barbecue, it has this very specific purpose. I, I envision barbecue. Um, but he's there to introduce his friends, his coworkers, those social outcasts that are just like him, and, and others. Notice including some Pharisees and their scribes. 
He's invited these people to Christ. He's just intuitively pointing others to his Savior. Listen, Levi has just started following Jesus. That's the indication here. He hasn't been to one single evangelistic training event yet. He hasn't memorized a track. He doesn't know the four spiritual laws. He, he, he hasn't read a single book on how to reach your neighbors for Christ. He hasn't heard a single sermon on, you know, the multiplication effect for evangelism, anything like that. He, nobody had to tell him that the appropriate thing to do is bring others to, to meet Jesus. No, it's just this natural response of this new disciple of Christ. He has this fire in his gut to introduce as many people as he can to Christ. So he's gathering in everybody. He has, he discerns better than anybody else their true need. He says, you irreligious people, you tax collectors, you sinners, you outcasts just like I was, you need him. You religious people, you Pharisees, you think you got your act together. You don't. You need Christ. He brings them all together in the same place at this feast. He's been so radically transformed by undeserved, unexpected, surprising grace. He just wants that for others, his fellow rejects and those elite. So listen, there's, there's no question. He's experienced all kinds of abuse and harassment from the Pharisees as a tax collector. Oh, they've been his staunchest enemies. They hate him. He's lived with that for years as they've walked by his booth. But now he's met Jesus. And now, now grace has broken in upon him. And now, now he's found something that the empty religious performance of the Pharisees it can't offer. And so he invites them to. Bad people, quote, bad people, and quote, good people, they all need the same grace. The same deliverance, the same rescue. What will bring, bring peace to the heart of a, quote, good person isn't more religion. What will bring peace to the heart of a, quote, bad person isn't more rebellion. And we both tend to think that. What will bring, bring us peace is Jesus Christ. And Levi understands this clue, so he brings them all together in his home. And, and it's like Levi just, he can't help himself. He just wants everyone, you know, I think of the woman in John 4, he she, she says, just come see the man who told me everything that I did. Could he be the Christ? I, 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 I can't help but speak of him and bring others to him. Is that true for you and me? I mean, I find this deeply convicting, church. As I've been thinking about my own life, my own heart, my own priorities this week. One mark of grace in the life of Christian is this longing, this longing, this compulsion that others would know Jesus. If we've lost that passion to make Jesus known, it may be we've lost some of the joy of our own union and communion with Jesus Christ. The, the exhilaration, the exhilaration of grace, it may no longer grip our hearts like it once did. Indifference to the plight of the lost, conversely, might be pointing to a cold indifference towards God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. And so I would just say, if God, were, if God were to revive his church today, and I pray that he will, and we want to pray for his reviving work in the church today, one of the evidences would be this incredible, we'd be incredibly burdened for the salvation of the lost. 
our prayers, our prayer meetings like tonight, we would be, we, they would take on fresh urgency. This is what's happened in the history of the church. I mean, this is, this is one of our prayers this summer as we go through this series is that the heart of Christ for the lost would increasingly be our heart. And that we would, it would show up in how we pray and how we act and how we speak and how, what we post and in, in, in how we eat, how we plan our meals. That the grace which has so surprised us in saving us, Lord, why would you save me? That that grace now would then spread through us. And we would have this compulsion to others to be drawn into that stream of grace, surprising grace. So grace surprises Grace spreads. Third, this is right in line with this. Grace disturbs. It disturbs. So the, the Pharisees, the scribes, have been invited by Levi to this, to this feast. They're there, though. They're taking notes on all that's taking place. They got their little, little notepads out, and they're stuffing their folders with things that they're observing and evidence that they can use against Jesus. And they got their phones out, and they're videoing these interactions and who's at the party and what Jesus, how, what he's eating, what he's drinking, and how much he's doing all of all this. And so they're, they're wanting to bring this indictment against Jesus. And so they're taking all this in, and clearly, here he is. They caught him. He's associating with the wrong people. He's offering salvation to the wrong people. And so you see this in verse 30, and, and they ask this question, and it's not a question as much as it's an accusation. That's clear here. And so here they say, and the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled at his disciples. You notice they're not going directly to Jesus. They're going around them, and they're, they're kind of making this indictment against them indirectly to Jesus. But they say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why? Why were these sinners? And that, that word sinners, it's a technical word. It's just the worst of the worst. The lowlifes, the rejects, the scum, the immoral, the sexually immoral, the criminals, the outcasts, the people you avoid on the dark street at night, the, the ceremonially defiled, the, those who've just trampled on God's law. These Pharisees are going crazy. They're losing their minds as they look around this this house and, and seeing who's here and, and Jesus seems to be so comfortable and is so at ease and eating and drinking with these people. And they're seeing this all take place. Listen, the problem with the Pharisees is not that they're, they can't stand parties. No, they loved it. They loved to feast. They had all kinds of feasts on their calendar and, and they got together and they celebrated. Their problem is the guest list. It's who's there. You can't, you can't feast with these people. So they, they level this accusation against him. And they're, again, they're reproving the disciples in this. They're saying, shame on you for following this man, making him your teacher. You should be rebuking him. This is disgraceful. Just look at him. Now, obviously, they don't see themselves in the category of, quote, sinner at all. That's looking outward. If in their eyes, they're undefiled. They're unstained. They, they, they exist in this moral realm far above the scum that are in that room, in the house there. They, the riffraff there. They, that's how they see themselves. But here's one thing that real grace does. Here's one thing that radical, transforming, spreading, surprising grace, the grace of Jesus Christ does. It disturbs those who think they're righteous. It is scandalous grace to the self-righteous. 
At the heart of their question is this issue of righteousness. What does true righteousness look like? That's, that's what's behind this. The Pharisees' view of righteousness is colliding head on with the true righteousness that Jesus has been preaching and teaching and, and modeling. And so when the, when the Pharisees see Jesus lounging and eating with these reprobates, they're essentially saying, all that stuff you've been saying about righteousness, that's a bunch of baloney. We're not buying it. Because they, they misunderstood the nature, the true nature of righteousness. The Pharisees and the scribes, they just thought of righteousness in this very small way as being in terms of things you don't do, basically. They were, that was what the Pharisees, that, the, the word Pharisee, it's separate ones. They, they, they believed in salvation by separation. That was their motto. And so, so how can Jesus, who claims to be this righteous man, be, be, uh, be righteous when he's eating with tax collectors and sinners? Can't you, can't you see, though, where, where that line of thought comes from? I mean, we get it. Take something that's clean, putting into contact with something that's dirty. What happens? The clean thing gets dirty. We get that. The opposite never happens. Or if you have two people, one's healthy, one, one has COVID. You put them in a confined space, like a car driving from Michigan. <laughs> uh, you, you, that happens. That's not right now. They're not sick now. But uh, um, what, what happens? Does, does the healthy person suddenly or the sick person suddenly get well by being in the presence of close presence of a healthy person? No, never. It's the opposite. That's why we quarantine folks who are sick and contagious. That's the grid through which the Pharisees are viewing this feast. And so dining with sinners, that's contaminating salvation by separation. So you see this earlier in the chapter. Look back at earlier in chapter 5. And this, this leper, the lepers, they're physically contagious. They have a skin issue that, that, that can spread to other people. And so socially, they're supposed to be away from people. They're supposed to be outside of the city. And then religiously, uh, spiritually, they're believed to be in this condition because of the judgment of God. So they're separated. So there's no one in the ancient world you wanted to avoid more than lepers for all of those reasons and more. And so when coming near healthy people, lepers, lepers were supposed to cry out, unclean, unclean, lest anybody kind of accidentally you know, bump into them or get too close to them. And yet here in this, this account, the leper doesn't stay away from Jesus like he's supposed to. He comes and he falls at his feet and he says, if you will, you can, you can make me clean. Jesus says, I will be clean. And he doesn't just say that. He touches the leper. He touches him. And he did this in full view of the disciples, in full view of the Pharisees. Scandalous. When clean and unclean come together, you always get unclean. Until this time. And something has changed. Something's different about this one. The unclean becomes clean. Salvation through separation? No. Salvation through association. Association with Christ. And, and, and so some of us, though, we, we don't we? Deep down, we still believe in salvation by separation. This is still that bent of our hearts. We believe at the end of the day, my worth, my significance, my righteousness before God is based on what I do, what I avoid, how pure I am. We, we find this tendency in our lives. This creates a, 
A very fragile sense of assurance for some of us, doesn't it? And I would say a very fragile holiness. Because we're always thinking, how do I know if I'm good enough? If I'm pure enough? If I'm separate enough? So, so it impacts. It also affects how we see others. It's, if that's our view, there's always going to be this felt danger of being polluted by other people. Now, can, can other people negatively influence us? Absolutely. We understand that. But, but we're, there, if, if this pharisaical tendency of se- salvation by separation is in our hearts, we're going to be always drawing lines. I mean, like big, thick lines between us and others. But if Jesus makes us clean, we can move out into the world and hope. Shining light and darkness. And so we, we have to guard our hearts against that arrogance, that pride, that self-righteousness towards other sinners. As you've heard it said, we're, we're, simply, we're simply poor beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. That's our posture. Is your inner Pharisee getting a little uncomfortable even this morning as we talk? We all have that little guy in there. He's an awful, terrible companion. He's there. He still lurks in the dark corners of our hearts. He's there in this heart. And, and every now and then his voice just fills our ears and we find ourselves kind of quietly sneering at the sins of others. Sins we would never commit. And we think we're better. And we think they should know better. And we think they, they're too far gone. And we've forgotten what we sang so joyfully earlier. It's not the righteous. It's not the righteous. It's sinners that Jesus came to call. We got to remember that even now, after years, for some of us, decades of following Jesus, that our righteousness is still filthy rags. And we have it all. Our righteousness, it offers zero grounds, zero grounds of our confidence and acceptance before God. That's not our standing. Confidence is in the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ. Oh, that we might, listen, church, oh, that we might better understand and apprehend Christ's gracious heart towards us, that we might have his gracious heart towards others. So grace, grace surprises, grace spreads, grace disturbs self-righteous and grace goes it it works it acts so finally quickly jesus responds to this accusation of the pharisees there <coughs> and he responds with a medical analogy so he, they're grumbling to the disciples but jesus overhears it or he knows what they're thinking and what they're saying it's probably not hard to tell they're probably not hiding it very well and so uh so he responds and he and he uses medical analogy so in in in, in this context when uh, most, most sick people just died. There wasn't a lot that could be done. And so it, if it was serious, serious enough for a doctor to come, it was deadly serious. Um, and so there were, there were no, like we have, well visits, you know, annual checkups with doctors or anything in that day. You didn't want to do that. Because uh, there, there was little, little that doctors could actually do. There just wasn't a lot of medical, quote, medical help. And so, but Jesus says, in, with that analogy in mind, that, that picture in mind, he says in verse 31, Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. What's he talking about? He's talking about forgiveness in the context, again, of, of, of Luke 5 here. 
He's saying, in the same way that doctors go to the sick, forgivers, Jesus, goes, goes to those who need forgiven, need to be forgiven. Now, again, the Pharisees, they, this, is a, this is a big issue for them. They, they didn't have a category for forgiveness in their minds, in their, in their system. There they, was no conceivable way, for, for, particularly for a person like a tax collector, to ever be forgiven and restored within their system of religion. It just wasn't a, there wasn't a vehicle for that. They thought, these people, it's, it's, it's off limits. They, they don't deserve to be forgiven. And they're right. They don't deserve it. But they're wrong also because they thought they did deserve it. They thought they, thought they had earned it. And so Jesus, but Jesus didn't, he, come, he didn't come to tell good people, you're okay. And to congratulate them and pat them on the back and tell them how good and healthy and kind and righteous you are. He came to those who were bad and sick and sinful. And to offer forgiveness through his sacrifice. The tax collectors and the sinners... That category, they, they, they possess the one trait that's essential for everyone who's to be forgiven. The one trait that makes it nearly impossible for religious people to, to, to be saved. And it's this, it's a recognition of their unworthiness. They knew they were sick. Jesus came to forgive and to heal the sick and the sinful. Those who recognize their need for forgiveness. We sing this, the same song. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. That's, that's, the, that's the fitness that the Lord requires. This is, what he, this is what he has in mind. So he says in verse 32, finally, I, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's not saying, I came to earth and there were these two groups. There were the, there were the healthy and the righteous ones who were okay and then there were the sick and the sinful ones who were not okay. That's not what he's saying. Now you look down in, in Luke chapter 15, verse 7. He says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Was he saying there, oh, there's only one in 100 people that actually need a Savior? No, that's not what he's saying. He's made it crystal clear. All need a Savior. He, but, he, but he's also shown the incredible power of self-deception. Among the self-righteous. The Pharisees, they deceived them into thinking, deceived themselves into thinking that they were righteous and they were okay and they were healthy. And, and, and so it's not that the 99 are not really in need of repentance. It's that the 99 are self-deluded. So the two groups, it's not good and bad. The two groups are those who are sinners and who know it and those who are sinners and who are self-deceived. That's what he's, that's the distinction he's making. The righteous think they're okay. They just have to kind of maintain. They've got to keep the scales balanced and be better than the, than the tax collectors and sinners, and they're okay. The sinners, though, they have nothing. They have nothing to offer God, and they know it. They bring nothing to the table. They, they, can, do, they can do nothing but cry out as a dying soul for mercy and saying, I, I can do nothing to correct my condition before you, Lord. And the Lord says, that's... That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm looking for. His stated purpose is one of grace, and, it's, and his grace goes, it acts. He's a physician looking for sick people who know they're sick. And he, he came to seek and to save lost sinners. He's active in it. 
He's going to Matthew, the tax collector, and he's saying, follow me. He follows him. This is good news, and it's for bad people. He came for bad people. He came for us. He didn't sit back and wait. He came. He go, grace goes. It, 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 it acts. He, he, Jesus moves towards us in love. He's the great physician who came to heal the sin sick. Listen, Levi's party and these stories in Luke 5 here they're, they're of, of Jesus' grace, they come to a climax in, in Luke chapter 6, in verse 11. We find there that the scribes and Pharisees, they're, the text says they're filled, they were filled with fury. All these things have taken place, like this scene in Levi's house. They're filled with fury, and they discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. <coughs> one commentator said, in Luke's gospel, Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. These, these religious leaders, they thought what Jesus was doing was disgraceful. Where the definition of disgraceful could simply be shockingly unacceptable. But what Levi saw is this one who is graceful. He is full of grace. It was, and so for him, it's shocking that he, Levi, might be made acceptable in Christ. Shockingly acceptable. And so the Pharisees, therefore, as they behold this scene that they see as disgraceful, they are ungrateful for Jesus and what he's doing, the enacted grace at this meal. Levi, full of thankfulness for this grace. The meal in Luke 5 here, it's pointing ahead, isn't it? As everything we're going to see up to the cross does. It's pointing to another meal that will take place on the night before Jesus died. The Lord's table that we're going to eat and drink together in a moment. Another word for this is Eucharist. And the, the, that word just simply means thanksgiving. That's, that's, the, that's what we come. That's our attitude as we come to this table. That Thanksgiving, we're to eat and drink together with gratitude at this table. And what's the, what's the cause of our thanksgiving? What, what's fueling our thanksgiving? How do we approach this table? Well, it could be a one of a couple ways. And there's an example of this in Luke chapter 18, actually. So we can, we'll, we'll, we can, you can look ahead in Luke chapter 18. And, and there's a type of thanksgiving that we come with head held high, chest bowed out, puffed up with, with, quote, thankfulness. And we see this in someone. And he's a Pharisee. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you, I thank you, that I am not like those other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this, what? Tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Is that, is that our posture of thankfulness? I hope not as we come to the table. I hope it's this. I hope it's a low, mercy-needing, humble thankfulness. He goes on. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. How do you approach the table today? What kind of thankfulness is in your heart this morning? 